Great. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21. It's a very familiar story. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was trying to have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Please send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I will send only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Some translations actually says she worshipped him. She said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the gods eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Now, this text is quite interesting on a number of reasons because it seems to make Jesus out to be a bit of a rude man to this poor, desperate woman. And one of the things that you would know if you, uh, uh, if you study scripture and you understand God's great story throughout scripture is that Jesus comes to earth as a full representation of heavenly papa. He is the representation of the father. If you want to know what the father thinks about any given situation, find out what Jesus in the scripture thinks about it. Because he fully represents the Father in every way. That's what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you have seen the... That was his whole modus operandi. In fact, the book of Colossians says that Jesus is the exact imprint, exact image of the Father. That when you begin to understand the Gospels are meant to be, uh, meant to be read through the lens of a relational connection between the Father and the Son, and the Son fully representing the Father. In Hebrew understanding, a Son is one who, who when he becomes a Son, there's a moment when, uh, a particular part of his life when he becomes a Son, and, and, and the Father says in a public space, in a public place, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He now fully represents me in all matters concerning business, family, or anything to do with my house. He's a full representative of my house. And when he signs something, it's as if I'm signing it. When he makes a promise, it's as if I'm making a promise. And so when the Father opens the heavens over Jesus saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, everyone around him would have understood that this now is the full representation of the Father on the earth. And so when you read the Gospels, you always have to understand that the Gospels reflect something of the Father in the life of Jesus. And when I get to this text, I'm thinking, sweet Jesus, this Father doesn't look really nice. (laughs) This Father seems a little bit very schizophrenic here, because in one moment, a little bit earlier, you see Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon, and he does many miracles. It says that they brought all those who were sick to him, and, and he healed them. And so here comes this poor woman who's desperate because her daughter has been demonized, has been oppressed by the enemy. And she comes to Jesus asking for a miracle. And one of the things that I've discovered in my Christian life is that there is a great revelation 
of what you really believe about your heavenly Father when suffering comes your way. That for many of us, when it comes to physical healing, when it comes to issues of suffering, when it comes to being oppressed by the enemy and looking for freedom, we directly connect that to the way that we see our Father. And I have found that many Christians blame, blame God or blame the Father for things the enemy's doing, or sometimes for things that they've just got themselves into. But it's incredible when the pressure's on, when suffering is in the midst of, when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're sick, when you're struggling, it's at those moments when you manifest what you really believe about the goodness of the Father. And this text is quite interesting because it is dealing with two groups of people, actually, not just one. It's dealing with the disciples and the hardness of their heart. And it's dealing with the desperation of this woman and the incredible faith that she has in a good God. And I love it because it's an example of faith to us. There are only two times that Jesus says, great is thy faith. It's of this woman and of a centurion. Both of those people were outside of the covenant blessing and covenant promises of Israel. They were not entitled to those promises. They could not lay claim of those promises because they were Gentiles. Yet God commends Gentiles for their faith way above any of the Israelites. In fact, the, the other time he uses this particular word great because he's literally marveling. It's not just that he's going... You've got a lot of faith. He's going, I am so overwhelmed. I'm marveled by your faith. The only other time he uses that same word, great, is when he's in the synagogue and the Bible says he could do no mighty work except he healed a few and he marveled at their unbelief. Speaking of the nation of Israel who wanted God to work in a particular way or a particular shape and because God didn't come that way, they didn't believe him. And so he... Jesus could do a few miracles. There was some great healing that happened in the synagogue that day. But he could do no mighty work. Faith is very often the difference between a few miracles in Hastings or a mighty work in this region. And faith is something that us evangelicals don't like talking about anymore. Because we don't want to put pressure on people to really believe God just in case he doesn't deliver. And this text is so jam-packed with such incredible truth and when you begin to understand that, you realize that there's something here for us in understanding a revelation of God's goodness to us, in us, and through us. Your heavenly Papa is not just intellectually or theologically good. He wants to be experientially good to you. In other words, there is a story of his glory that he wants to give you to reflect his goodness. I'm going to say amen because that was a good point. (laughs) Now, this story has overtures of another story in the Bible. How many of you remember the story of Elijah and the widow, the Canaanite woman, who lost his son? And so in this context, 
And you need to understand, when Jesus, or when the writer is writing the story, he's writing it into a particular context that is governed by shame, and is governed by community, and is governed by judgment. It is a what's called an honor-based culture, or a shame-based culture rather, where if you don't do something right, you get shamed. And so when the story is to be read, it's to be read in the particular context of the day. And so when, when they read, when Jesus is demonstrating this miracle, many of those who were around him, because there would have been a community around him, Jesus never does anything in isolation except pray. Everything else is in a community context. And so you'll see that everything around the Middle East happens around people following this Jesus. Jesus having discourse, there's always community, and there's always an ability or an opportunity for connectedness in that community in that moment. That's how the Middle East worked in those days. And so Jesus is doing this miracle in the context of community. It's not an isolated audience. This people would have been watching, people would have been seeing. And so when this woman comes and cries out, there, there are some overtures of this healing that happened as, as Elijah ministered great breakthrough as a prophet to this woman. And Jesus is wanting to demonstrate that he is a, the fulfillment of Elijah in this context. He's wanting to demonstrate that actually he carries a power that's greater than Elijah. And I love what Jesus does because in this context of community, in this context of honor, in this context of shame, he's wanting us to understand how we can can press through and get something of his healing power, how we can press through and get something of his heart. And so Jesus begins by having a discourse with this woman. And in Jewish or Mediterranean culture at that time, one of the ways that you would uh, win an argument is to shame your opponent. And so here comes this woman as a Canaanite. She's not part of the house of Israel. In fact, she is one of the people that Israel despises because she would have been um, Greek, coming out of a Greek culture, coming out of a Greek community, Syrophoenician woman, who would have been some of the oppressors of Israel in those days. And so here comes this woman, the woman who's oppressed the very nation of Israel, and says to Jesus, I need you to heal my daughter. And he begins to discourse with her because he's wanting to create a context that was very normal in which the answer would be determined by who gets the honor and who gets the shame. And one of the things that I've noticed around healing and freedom and deliverance is that many of us, when we're struggling with sin issues, when we're struggling with sickness, when we're struggling with, with difficulties, it becomes an issue of identity that either that most often imparts shame and guilt associated with it. And because we live in a society that's governed by shame and governed by guilt, and shame happens one of two ways. Shame either comes upon you because of somebody else's sin, or shame comes upon you because of your own sin and what you've done, right? And shame causes you to feel less than somebody else. Shame causes you to come under a subservient spirit that says you're not good enough or you can't earn your breakthrough or actually you'll never get your breakthrough because actually you're not good enough and shame on you for even asking Jesus for a breakthrough. Or if you're struggling with an addiction to pornography or struggling with an issue of sin, shame on you for even coming to church and expecting some kind of freedom. 
When actually God invites us into his grace and goodness and wants to remove the shame. And Jesus begins his discourse with this woman and he is brilliant because what he does is he throws out a question which he's expecting an answer from her in order to determine whether or not there's going to be some kind of a breakthrough here or what's going to happen. And what Jesus does in this context is remarkable because instead of shaming the woman and sending her away, he allows himself to be shamed. He allows himself to lose the argument because the woman has seen something of his character. The woman has seen something of the goodness of God and has seen something of the goodness of God in Jesus by the way that he healed all who were sick and oppressed of the enemy. And she reckons that it doesn't matter what I get from this man, even if it is only crumbs, it's still going to be good. And so she answers his question or statement with a greater statement saying, even the dogs get your crumbs. And Jesus steps back and he's undone going, that is a faithful answer and I'm marveling at that. And the shame that should have been on her suddenly comes on him in that moment because he just lost an argument. And Jesus does two things in losing that argument with this lady. One, He exposes the hardness of heart in the disciples. Because you see, the disciples wanted her to go away. This is some Greek. We don't need her. She is a god. She needs to move. We don't want her part. I know we're called to reach the masses, but we don't want to help this lady. And Jesus, in allowing her to have this discourse with him, in allowing her to have this conversation with her, even in ignoring her, is given an opportunity to reveal what is in the heart of the disciples. How many of you know that Jesus often will offend your mind to reveal what's in your heart? You see, one of the things that I know about God and his moving is that in all of the movings of God and even in the presentation of the gospel is an opportunity for offense. The Bible says that the gospel is an offense. The good news is an offense. I'm not talking about being offensive for offensive sake. I'm talking about the ability to reveal what's in your heart. The word offense is the word scandalizo. Actually, where we get the word stumbling block. When, when the Bible talks about offense, it's not just saying, oh, I'm cross with you, or I'm offended with you. It literally means I've stumbled over who you are. And Jesus and the way that he heals, the way that he delivers, the way that he does ministry will cause one of two responses, great love or great offense. And I have found in terms of healing ministry, I have found in terms of inner healing, in terms of bringing emotional freedom, that the greatest obstacle to healing is not on the part of God's power, but on the part of our ability to receive without any offense. Because offense produces a heart that questions the goodness of God. So when sickness and disease and trouble comes to us, the first thing we say, rather than fighting the devil, is, God, why did you do this to me? And it creates a stumbling block and offense because suddenly we understand that actually what's in our heart and what we really believe about his goodness 
is that maybe he's not that good. You see, one of the things that I've come to understand, and I'm saying this out of personal experience because I struggle with sickness in my own body and have done so since I was born, is that I can do one of two things. I can live in the place of faith in his goodness as revealed in Scripture, or I can live in the place of offense because he's not answering my question the way I want him to answer it right now, and thereby it produces a lack of faith and it regulates what and when I believe in him. Unanswered questions regulate your faith, and so I have chosen to believe that he is good in the midst of my unanswered questions because what is revealed about him is that he is good despite what I do not know and that is unseen around him. Katya told you earlier today of um, our wedding day and the run-up to our wedding. Three weeks before our wedding, I had a dream that my mum would pass away on our wedding day. And um, 10 days before she began to get very sick, she came out to the UK, suddenly caught an infection, and which escalated to organ failure. Eventually, she was in an induced coma. And um, literally the night before, like I just said, I, I phoned her to say, Hun, I don't know if we're going to get married tomorrow. Now, how many of you know that right in that moment, those questions begin to rattle? <laughs> And I've come to understand something in the midst of suffering. That what anchors my soul is not the transient nature of circumstance. What anchors my soul is the eternal truth that God is good. And I remember at about half past one at night, wrestling, not being able to sleep, thinking... My mum is not going to be at my wedding day. One of the most important people in my life is not going to be there. And rather than allowing questions and offense to regulate what I believe about God, I decided that what he has already revealed about himself must be true. And therefore, either he is good or he is a liar. But there is no in-between. There is no nice theology that can try and make sense of my suffering and go, well, God sometimes gives you suffering to teach you a lesson. No, he doesn't. There is no nice theology that says sometimes God will give you sickness just to, you know, make you more Christ-like. No, I already am Christ-like because of the finished work of the cross. No, no, the reality is either he's good or he's not. And brothers and sisters, I have found him to be true. And I have found his word to be true. He is good. But not only that, sometimes offense can be the key to your breakthrough. <laughs> because God will often dress up your breakthrough in an offensive package to see how much you want it. <laughs> Shika bazooka. got a public confession to make. Please forgive me for this. I know some of you are going to stone me after this. One of my favorite heroes in the healing ministry is a man called Benny Hinn. 
And people hate him. Christians hate him. The poor dude gets hate mail. Just need to Google it. And, and sometimes I think, oh, dear Brother Benny Hing, why did you say that? That just doesn't make any sense. But what I do know is despite his white suit and hair, <laughs> he carries a grace that's on him that when I partner with it, I fall more in love with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you see, the reason why honor is important, the reason why Jesus allowed himself to be shamed and lose this argument is to bestow honor on this woman and thereby expose the hard hearts of both sexist and racist attitudes in the hearts of the disciples to show them that I value the things that you think have no value. And so I will take the shame, I will lose this argument, and I will honor this woman in your midst because the basis of the releasing of the miraculous and the supernatural in the kingdom has to do with honor. Because honor says, in you and in you is intrinsic worth that looks like the glory of God. It's why we give him glory, because he put glory in us. We cannot give him anything that he's not put in us. It's why we are a reflection of him. It's why we are broken image bearers of him, because in every single person, is the ability and the anointing and the glory of God. And whatever has glory must be honored. It's why we all stand up and cheer one another. In our church, you do the announcements, you get a, 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 an applause before you even do it. The reason we, we stand up and applaud one another is not because we all want to try and pat each other on the back. It's because we want to communicate that you are valuable before you do anything. You've got intrinsic glory on the inside of you. So before you even perform, we celebrate you. It's why we need to... Shika Bazooka, I'm going to go here. It's why we need to celebrate the Muslim community. Oh, that went over like a lead balloon. It's why we need to value the prostitute. It's why we need to value every one of the worst and the worst that we can think of because intrinsic to them is glory. And Jesus takes this woman who has no value in society and he allows himself to be humbled in front of her and puts his honor on her. And very often, brothers and sisters, the packaging doesn't look right and so our breakthrough never comes because we want the man of God, the man of power for the hour, or the woman of God who looks good and go all together to pray for us. Most often the breakthrough you need, particularly in churches, is sitting right next door to you. Amen, Julian. And honor looks like something. Honor says, I value you because of grace that's on you. And so therefore, I serve and love you. Therefore, I protect you. Therefore, I prefer you. Therefore, I celebrate you. And one of the greatest obstacles to healing in the church today is not the lack of God's power, 
But it's most often the packaging that he uses to bring your breakthrough or your healing. I remember when the Karanka blessing began to break out. And this church was some of the pioneers in those early days of the move of the Holy Spirit in 1994. And people were laughing and crying and people used to come in and say, this is rubbish, it's not from God, we weren't allowed this. Yet God was setting the whole generation of fire. Do you know when you do uh, missional studies, from 1994 up until 2000, there was a greater release of people onto the mission field than in any other time in history? And it was all connected to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And people despised saying, oh, we don't do that kind of thing. We're not into laughing. We're not into... The packaging didn't look good. I remember when people started getting gold dust. I was one of them. I was like, I don't want gold dust in me. We need to take the L out of gold and make it about God. Let's not do this gold dust stuff. I mean, really, it's the latest Christian gimmick. Until I started getting flakes of gold on my face while I was preaching and suddenly he said, but God, I didn't ask for this. And he said, I didn't need your permission. <laughs> I reserve the right to mess with your mind. And one of the biggest areas of offense that we get is not just packaging, but theology. Because we all think our theology is good. Oh... I love killing holy cows. They make the best burgers. And I'm hearing some mooing happening right now. God will never contradict my theology or my practice. That's exactly what the Pharisees said and they missed the whole move of God. Because Jesus didn't fit the packaging. Listen, I'm not quite sure if I believe what I believed five years ago anymore. Not because my theology is dodgy, but because I know that when God begins to break into our lives, things begin to change. That there's an ever-increasing nature to to Scripture. It's not static. It's a living word. And I'm not talking about fundamentals. But I am saying, just so you know, someone else might preach a different theology to you and get more results than you. That's okay. You don't have to change your theology, but what you have to do is honor what God has put on that person. The packaging looks different. And Jesus demonstrates in this context that he is willing to put honor upon those who will never ever fit the mold in mainline church, mainline structure, and give them a breakthrough simply because they're hungry. I want to suggest to you Like our issue is not about pleading or begging for another move of God. Our issue is hunger. Jesus exposes the hearts of the disciples in this context. And then he says something incredible. This woman says to him, even the puppies, that's actually what the word is there, dogs, the little puppies, get morsels of food that fall from the table. And this woman recognizes two things. Firstly, she says, Son of David, have mercy on me. She recognizes that Jesus is connected to the lineage of David, therefore he is a messianic figure and he has the messianic promises fulfilled in his life. You see, everybody wanted a king like David in those days. 
The one coming who would come and make Israel right again. And this woman would have enough history in her past to remember Rahab and the breakthrough that God brought through that Canaanite woman. She would have enough history in her past to remember Elijah and the breakthrough that came through that prophet of God. Elijah left the people of Israel, the Bible says, and went to a woman in Cana because of a lack of honor. That's what the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus would have been this figure, this Elijah-type figure, this figure who brings the kingdom of God, who brings the breakthrough, counts our sins not against us, but releases grace. And this woman would have known something about it. And she says, you, you're like that king, David, the one who releases the rule and the reign of Yahweh on the earth. And I want in on that because that king was good. And despite my standing, I know that you must be good. Therefore, I'm going to get my healing today. Because she says, yeah, I know that you might be eating bread at your table, but I'm coming to get some crumbs. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Because she connects God's ability to move, not to his power, but to his goodness. If you're struggling with sickness, if you're struggling with emotional difficulties, if you're struggling with disappointment with God, your issue is not an answer that needs to be theologically crafted or worded. Your issue is an understanding of his goodness. And this woman gets her breakthrough because she plugs into his goodness. She says, even those masters give them crumbs. So you have got to be better than that. And Jesus says something profound, and this is where I want to hand the whole point of the sermon. He says, healing is the children's bread. He says, I'm not going to take the bread that should be for the children of Israel. The covenant keepers, the covenant promise to, to Israel is that they would have health and healing. The primary revelation of God in the earliest part of Scripture is I am. And the reason he says I am is not because he's trying to be vague, but simply to demonstrate that he is who he is, who you need him to be in the moment you need him to be. I am the great I am. I am who I am. If you need sickness, I am healer. If you, if you, I mean, if you, need, uh, if you need healing, I am healer. If you need provision, I am provider. If you need breakthrough, I am victory. If you need uh, 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 um, whatever it is that you need, I am in that moment who I am to you. They would have known that. They would have known The great I am is healer. There is nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New where God is not revealed as healer. God is healer. He is the great I am. He doesn't heal because he's got power. He heals because that's who he is. His nature to heal. And God, Jesus says this incredible thing. Remember, Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He says... And it's not right that I take from the children's bread and give it to you because literally the point of that phrase is that healing. And when I use the word healing, I want to use it generically as it is actually used in that context. Speaking of emotional healing, freedom from bondage and stronghold, 
Healing in the area of sickness and disease. Healing in the area of your emotions. Every aspect of your life. Healing is your daily bread. Do you know what happens immediately after this? Go ahead and look. And you'll see that the very next part of this verse is all about miracles and healings and signs and wonders and the multiplying of some bread. Let me just get there quickly. I hope I am right. I think I am. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 15. I think it is in this context. Where are we? Listen to this. Verse 29. Straight off, he's demonstrated that healing is the children's bread. Jesus went up from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And put them at his feet. And he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then you know what happens? He multiplies some bread. Jesus illustrates what just happened prophetically a moment. That healing is meant to be an overflow of a revelation of the goodness of the Father. Just like bread is a basic prerequisite for living, particularly in the Middle East, that a loaf of bread was the simplest form of food on your table that the Father could provide even so, your heavenly Father wants you healed up, freed up, and walking in all the life that he's called you to. It is part of his nature to heal you. It is the very basic element of provision that he wants to give you your healing. Because hurt people hurt people, but free people free people. God wants to be emotionally free, physically free. Now, do I understand the tension of now and not yet? Absolutely. Do I understand that we've got the kingdom breaking in? But in the middle of that, the Bible says of his kingdom, there'll be no end. In other words, his kingdom is an ever-increasing kingdom, which means I can expect more of his kingdom today than I did yesterday. Do I understand why I'm still struggling with sickness in my body? I don't have a cooking clue. But will I be intellectually offended by him? Absolutely not, because he's good. There's some of you who are sitting with sickness in your body, sickness in your heart and your emotions, that you've said, this is just the way I am. I have to settle it. God's allowed it, so I'm going to deal with it. I've got good news for you today. Eating the bread of healing is the basic invitation that you get as a child of God. Because healing is the one thing that right in that moment displays that he is good. And the early church believed a simple gospel. God is good, the devil is bad. Good things come from God, bad things come from the devil. And the result was they saw many signs and wonders and miracles. Now, we have caused a, we have brought a teaching into the world that has made God seem schizophrenic. Like he's the author of judgment upon people. 
Like he is the author of sickness upon people. And we've attributed enemy characteristics to a good, kind God. And we wonder why we don't see many miracles, signs, and wonders. Brothers and sisters, healing is the children's bread. And the reason why we are called to be a healing community, both in physical healing, spiritual healing, and emotional healing, is because it reveals the very basic nature of a good God who provides good things for his children. You might be here struggling with sickness and disease. You might be saying, I've been up for prayer and done the whole thing. I've even had Betty Hinn pray for me and nothing's happened. I don't really care because today could be the moment where healing tips into your favor. There's some of you who got disappointment because God did not heal someone you wanted him to heal in the way that you wanted him to heal and they died. Maybe it would be of cancer or whatever the case might be. And you're going, I'm disappointed with you, God, because you did not heal, and therefore I don't know if you're really good. Today, you're going to have to lay down your offense with God. And trust him in his goodness. Last night I quoted that scripture, it says, count it all joy when trials and tribulation comes your way. I love that verse. And one translation says, make it the natural outcome of your calculation. That joy will be the result of your tribulation. Because the key to overcoming your suffering is not by throwing a pity party. It's by understanding his goodness, by understanding his joy. Because the result of Christ's suffering on the cross, the reason he endured the cross was for the joy that was set before him. There is great purpose in you learning to be joyful in all circumstances. I had one minister come up, one person in the church come up and say, Brother Julian, I don't like your emphasis on joy. It's far too emotional. We don't do that kind of thing here. This is church. We've got to be serious. It's emotional joy stuff. And I said to him, sir, the problem is that joy is not an emotion. It's a fruit. And it should be on display. The kind of joy that moves your face. The word happy means to be ecstatically caught up. It means to be blissfully blessed. And that's the lowest manifestation of joy. In other words, you cannot be joyful without at least smiling. I'm joyful. And some of you are going to have to lay down the right to be angry with God because he's not the author of evil. And you're going to have to pick up the loving embrace of mystery. Even though I don't understand what I don't see, what I do see is that he's good and I'm going to believe in that. I believe God wants to pour out much healing today. For some of you, it's going to be emotional. I'm not going to take too much longer because I know we need to get done. For many of you, it's going to be physical. Long-term illnesses, long-term pains, long-term sicknesses. God wants to heal that today. There are numbers of you with allergies and digestive problems. God wants to heal that today. And you've just settled and thought, oh, well, I'll just learn whatever I need to learn in this moment. Listen, 
If God gave you sickness to teach you a lesson, don't go to the doctor. So you can learn your lesson well. It's a no-brainer. And then once you've learned the lesson, you'll take the sickness away. That's how dumb that theology really is. To believe that God gives you sickness. Do you know what's great about God? Is that he can win with a pair of clues in his hand. I was born with what's called a cleft palate. So it's affected my speech, my hearing, my breathing, the loads of ramifications physically on my body. God hasn't healed me yet. But I find it fascinating that the enemy tried to destroy the very thing that God is now using for his glory. And I love the goodness of God because do I think God gave me the cleft palate? Do I think it was his will for me to have it? Absolutely not. Do I know that I'm going to be healed 100% whether it happens on planet Earth or when the fullness of the kingdom comes upon me, I'm going to be healed. I know that. So healing's never the issue. Just about a little bit of timing and me trusting him. But what I love about God is that even with a pair of twos, even where the enemy tried to disable my ability to hear and to speak, God goes, I'm going to use that as divine justice against the enemy. And the very thing that the enemy just tried to disable, he now enables to bring radical freedom to hundreds of people. Do I think this is God teaching me a lesson? You've got to be stupid to think that. Do I know that God can use everything? I'm so confident that he's so kind that he can. This woman gets honor in the place of dishonor. And God answers her cry simply because she says, I can see through all of the discourse that you're giving me. I can see through all of the the hate that these men have toward me. I can see in you the intrinsic goodness of the Father. And I'm going to lean into that for my miracle. Today, if you're sick in your body, if you're struggling with emotional, uh, you need some emotional healing, whether it's depression or bipolar, I've seen a number of people come off medication for bipolar. Um, Whatever it is, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether it's obsessive compulsive disorders, whatever it is, whatever your mental health condition, whatever it is, God wants to heal that. We do not have to settle for it. But I suspect the numbers of you here too need to be healed of disappointment. Where you can actually go, do you know what? He actually is good. Was I disappointed that my mum was not at my wedding? Was I angry and frustrated? Did I have all the answers? Absolutely. I was going through loads of stuff. I didn't have all the answers. I knew that I was angry and disappointed. Why? How come? All those questions were there. But did I know that God is good? Do I know that God is good? Oh, I know he's good. And I choose to lay down my disappointment. Because his goodness overwhelms everything else. So right now, we're going to pray. I wonder if I could just have someone come and play the piano. Unlike Katya, I like a little bit of nice mood music. I'm just teasing my wife. Wasn't she amazing this morning? Incredible, hey? I'm the most blessed man here. So grateful to God.